Good evening. Hi. My name is uh, Pastor Chris. And no, I, you're not seeing doubles. Uh, there are two of us. There are two of us. Um, so I guess you are seeing doubles. Um, I am the other Pastor Chris, uh, which some of you in this room maybe had no idea that I existed, I guess. Uh, and you're wondering who I am and how I'm a pastor here because you never see me. Um, we are a multi-site church, so we have, uh, Central has uh, a bunch of campuses. We have some in Chilliwack and Agassiz, and, uh, and my role at the church at Central is I'm the children and family pastor, so I sort of oversee Sunday school stuff for kids and uh, working with young families, um, and uh, occasionally they will send me to one of our other campuses, so I'm really excited to be here in Lake Iraq. This is my first time out here preaching. I was here at the inaugural service uh, many months ago, but um, I'm super stoked to be here, and Chris is rubbing off on me because I just used the word stoked, so, <laughs> so we love Chris. He's awesome. Okay, I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, Psalm 127, Psalm 127. Um, and uh, also, I should mention that I am also the husband of our women's pastor, Jessica, who's sitting right here, by the way. So she's the best women's pastor in the world, but I'm kind of biased. She's a better wife. She's awesome. Um, and so uh, Jessica and I, um, a number of years ago, we got a chance to uh, travel to um, Europe. We got to go to Europe and travel around and see a few different countries, and um, it, was an, um, it was an awesome trip. Um, we saw four different countries and 11 cities in 18 days, so it was kind of a, a whirlwind, but um, there's basically one reason that you go to Europe, and it's to see, uh, it's to see the architecture. It's to see the buildings and all the historic um, sites. And uh, one of the things that we um, were really struck by as we kind of traveled around and went through different cathedrals and uh, saw the Colosseum and places like that was how enduring uh, these structures were. Like some of them existed for like a couple thousand years. Um, and they were built out of things like stone and brick and marble and steel, and so they're very, very old, and they're still standing. And uh, tragically, um, you guys might remember last April 15th, um, the cathedral in Notre Dame in, in Paris uh, went on fire. It caught fire. Um, the whole world watched uh, in horror this was happening. And thankfully, Jess and I got to see it before, before that happened. Uh, they say now the restoration of that is going to take up to the year 2024 till that is restored. So just in minutes, this fire can, you know, destroy what, what has been there for so long, and it's going to take years to undo that. However, that structure is still standing. Even though it had a fire, it still stood, and much of the building was left untouched, so strong. Now contrast that with a house fire that happened uh, down from my street a couple blocks. Two, two summers ago, uh, I saw this black smoke and I went over and checked it out and this there was a fire and this house lit up like so fast and it was basically gone. Like the fire, they put it out but they had to demolish the whole thing. And since that time, they have already 
they've already bulldozed that house and they've already built a brand new one because it's made out of wood. Yay, Canadian lumber industry. Awesome, right? It's made out of wood, right? So uh, it burns much, much quicker. Um, it goes down faster, but it's easy, to, it's easy to, to build again. But you can, you guys, this is starting to sound like the three little pigs, right? Three little pigs. Remember that story? House of straw, house of, house of wood, house of bricks. Um, all of this has got me thinking about what is the stuff that our church is built out of? What's the stuff that your family is built out of? Um, these are two much more important building structures that we can think about as uh, God's people. Is your family or is our church built like Notre Dame? That when the fires hit, it will still stand? Or are we built like the house fire two blocks from my house that was completely wiped out? As we look around and we see uh, families break apart, churches close their doors, and children and teenagers harmed in that process, what kind of stuff is gonna keep us strong to the end so that we last in our faith. I think you're gonna find it encouraging as we look at Psalm 127, uh, and we're gonna look there for God's help and wisdom tonight. So without further ado, let me just begin to read this Psalm for us, and then we'll pray. Psalm 127, verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for um, your word. Uh, God, I thank you for this text that I have been Meditating on all week and for several weeks, Father, I pray that you would just help me uh, to communicate it well tonight, Lord, and would you help my friends here to hear it, um, uh, to hear your voice uh, through this passage, Lord. And if there's anything that I say tonight, Lord, that is not of you, I pray that it would melt away, that it would fall away, but that, Lord, your word would stand in their hearts today. Um, we just thank you for your word, Father, and would you come and speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I have three points um, that I'd like us to focus on in this text. Uh, number one, we're going to look at how God builds. Uh, second, we'll look at how we're busy. And then third, we're going to look at how children bless. Children bless. So if you look at verse one of uh, Psalm 127 again, um, Psalm 120, uh, 127 is a, is a wisdom psalm. It's part of the wisdom literature genre in scripture and uh, so it's jam-packed with wisdom. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And knowledge. Um, wisdom literature has a unique way of communicating 
God's truth. It doesn't instruct us by commandments or by storytelling. It teaches us by way of reflection and it appeals to our common sense. Zach Eswine is a pastor uh, in the States. He says this about wisdom literature. He says, wisdom speech addresses the stuff of life. It is earthy, human, and knowledgeable about the varying strata of reality. As such, in many ways, it is pretty straightforward. And in other ways, it is pregnant with meaning. I want to give you a case in point. The word house in verse 1 of Psalm 127 uh, it carries really at least three meanings, three, um, three meanings to this word house. The first meaning is the temple, uh, which is God's house in the Old Testament. Uh, this is written by Solomon, possibly David, this psalm. And so as they are writing, um, they're speaking of God's house and they're referencing probably the temple in Jerusalem. The reference to the city as well in verse one is undoubtedly a reference to the city of Jerusalem. Um, also, what gives us an indication of this is Psalm 127 is a part of a section in Psalms called uh, the Song of Ascents. So Psalm 120 to 134 are all songs of ascents. They were written for God's people um, to provide them with words of praise and lament and reflection as they ascended or went up to the temple in Jerusalem for corporate worship. In other words, to build God's house, to protect God's city, is to be involved in the building project at the center of the community of faith. But house doesn't only mean brick and mortar temple, it secondarily means uh, God's people. Um, I'm going to reference Hebrews chapter 3 here. It should come up there on the screen. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. Now, question, did Moses have the temple in his day? No, he didn't. Um, you could argue tabernacle, but usually the tabernacle is not a reference as God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. This is talking about God's people. Moses was faithful over God's house, which means God's household or his family, not just the temple. So, House can refer to God's people. That's a secondary meaning. And this is what interpreters call a metonymy. Okay, so you use the word house um, and you substitute it for another word, right? So when you hear the word house, you think things. Um, so you think temple, you think family of God. And um, also in the New Testament, the, the people of God are not Israel anymore, but are the church. And so here's what it says in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, verse 14 to 15, Paul writes to Timothy and says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. It's the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress. Another text, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Talking to the church. That God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. You are that temple. Wow, God 
wants to protect you, <laughs> church. So great. Third meaning, though, a third meaning of the word house is it refers to an individual family unit, a household. So within the Psalms, within Psalm 127, um, there is a actual word linkage in the Hebrew between the word children, or it's um, other translation have it as sons. So that Hebrew word there is actually linked to the word house. They are linguistically uh, connected. So the psalm was written, um, again, by possibly David toward his son Solomon. And so we're looking at a family here as well. So as we look at verse 1 of this psalm, you can see Solomon is reflecting on the fact that through his observations, families, the family of God, the church, and the projects that the family of God pursues, the temple, must remember that without God's blessing, guidance, and empowerment, our efforts are vain. Now the word in uh, verse one and two in this passage is repeated three times. And it's the same word Solomon uses in the book of Ecclesiastes. It literally means vapor or smoke. You can't grab hold of smoke. It's elusive, it escapes us. So without God, all of our efforts ultimately go nowhere. They amount to nothing. So what's Solomon getting at here? King Solomon's reflecting on, he wants God's people to reflect on the possibility that we can give everything we have, our heart, our soul, our blood, our sweat, our tears, our earnest efforts into building God's house, but if we have done these things in our own strength, there's smoke. They will ultimately fail. Solomon reminds us that God must build our home, our church, or else it's smoke. Or it's sinking sand, to borrow the language of Jesus. It's a road that leads nowhere. We're getting nowhere fast, as will become applicable very soon, as you see. So how can we be sure today that we are uh, allowing the Lord to build our house? Well, I want to give you two kind of um, points here around this. Number one, our house must first of all be built on Christ. Christ must be the foundation of your home. And that goes for us as a church, but also our individual 1 Corinthians 3 again, verse 10 and 11 says this, according to the grace of God, talking, uh, Paul's talking um, to this church in Corinth, and he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. He's, talking, he's now ministering to that church. He says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian parent or part of the church or a grandparent, uh, the question for you at the end of the day is, is Christ at the foundation of your home? Is Christ at the foundation of our church family? Is our home built on the solid rock of the good news of Jesus? or the sinking sands of something else. I'll give you an example. 
In your home, um, do your kids only know the law? Or do they also know grace and forgiveness and mercy too? There's nothing wrong with the law. Kids understand what, they need to understand what is right and wrong and how God has ordered the world and how to live out their life in a moral way. But as Christians, we understand that the law alone cannot change our kids' hearts. Only the grace of Christ through the gospel can change them. Um, I'll give you an example of this. A couple of years ago, my son and I were uh, very frustrated with each other and having a, having a moment. <laughs> and mostly I was frustrated. I was frustrated because he wasn't listening. And I can't even remember what all the details of the situation were. But I remember him going to his room. And I just had this moment where I realized like, I was at fault. But I didn't, I didn't want to admit it because I'm stubborn. And, uh, but I, I, I went to his room and I said, sorry. And I asked him to forgive me. And I actually said to him, I, I don't know what to do in this. I don't know how we're going to get over this. But I said, why don't we pray together? And at the end of it, my son said to me, um, Dad, I'm so glad that you're my dad. <laughs> and so in this moment of like, we're just, you know, doing this, it just turned through the grace of Jesus, through his spirit, it turned into this beautiful moment with me and my son, Ben. Another question, in your home, do your kids know that Jesus is present in your home and is life centered around him? I'll never forget a friend of mine, Amy, she, uh, she lives down in Texas now, but uh, she used to rave about her dad and, and her and her husband both were like, oh, you gotta be, he's the most godly guy and blah, 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 and they'd always be talking about him. And I'll never forget that um, as she described her life growing up with this big family, she had like seven other siblings and, um, and she would tell us about her family life and about her dad leading them and stuff. Um, she described it this way. She said, we always knew that Jesus was at the center of our family. They had this tangible sense of that growing up as kids. So to have the Lord build your house means that you stand on the finished work of Christ, not your accomplishments as a parent. And you rely on the presence of Christ to go about the work of parenting. And this applies to us in the church as well and all that we would do in the church. Unless you're standing on the fact that Jesus died for you and he rose again, and unless your kids know that they're saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and that he is with them and with you to the end of the age, your parenting efforts will not last. But there's a second thing that we can build with. Uh, secondly, we must use God's building materials. We must use God's building materials. So relying fully on God means that we will value what he tells us are the right materials rather than family tradition or the cultural experts or just whatever works. Those are not the ultimate authority, but it's what God says. So here's what it says again. Here's what Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation, so Christ the foundation, with gold, Silver, precious stones, wood. He's referring to things that the temple was built with. 
in Jerusalem. Those are all the, the things that God had prescribed it to be. Hay and straw. If you go back to 1 Kings uh, chapter 8 or chapter 6 when the temple's being built, you don't see straw and hay mentioned there. So Paul's telling us something here. Here's what he says. He says, each one's work will become manifest. For the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So now Paul's talking about salvation here. He's not saying, he's saying, look, you have a foundation. Jesus, like, but he's saying as you build God's house, the church, we could apply this to family, what are we building with? Is it the precious stones or is it hay and straw? Well, the day will test what it's worth. So Paul is saying that it's possible for church leaders to build the church with gold, silver, and precious stones. It's also possible to build with hay. So what does that look like? materials that God wants us to build on the foundation with. There's lots of things we can say, but I want to point out kind of three things that I, I see in context. In what here. Um, the first thing is humility. The first reason that we don't feel the need to rely on God in the way that we build is because we believe we, can, we are able to handle things on our own. The antidote to this is humility. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means seeing yourself accurately. It means realizing we're not God. We are limited beings. Here's what Paul Tripp in his book, Parenting, says uh, about those of us who believe that we're able in ourselves. He says, no child really wants to be parented by parents who think that they're able. Able parents tend to be proud and self-assured parents because they are proud of their ability. They act too quickly and with too much self-confidence. And because they do, they lack patience and understanding. Able parents tend to assume that their children should be able to, should be able to. So they tend to fail to be tender when the weaknesses of their children get exposed. Able parents who pride themselves in keeping the law tend to give their children more law than grace and are quicker to judge than to understand. And able parents tend to want their children to be their trophies, a public demonstration of their ability. It's hard to live with people who deny weakness. Because people who deny weakness tend not to be patient, loving, and understanding with people who are weak. Your inability is not the destruction of your parenting because God meets people who humbly admit their weaknesses and run to him. They get an amen. Amen. <laughs> So are you an, an able parent? Or are you a, a God-dependent parent? Are you an able God-dependent Christian? Do you know all the answers and so you judge other parents around you? I'm finding that parents are really great at judging other parents. <laughs> or are you willing to admit you don't have it all figured out? But you're leaning on Jesus for wisdom and strength. 
And what would it look like if our church was the kind of place where parents didn't sit around passing judgment on one another or anybody else passing judgment on them as parents, but was a place where we could minister to one another when we're struggling as parents? That'd be great. And that's the kind of church we want to have. That's kind of a family life we want to have here. A second thing uh, of God's building materials to build with is prayer. Relying fully on God looks like prayer. If you believe you are not able, but God is able, then prayer will follow. It's possible to employ some great methods from harmful internet content. But as much as you might act like a watchman and do the right things and have safeguards for your kids, by the way, I'm not knocking any of those things. Those are great. Disney circle in your home or whatever, parental controls uh, to protect your kids. Those are great. But the work in your child's heart is something that only the spirit can do. And your child can still go find their way around all those safeguards if they really desire those things. And so we must pray. We must pray for our kids. We must pray for our church. Um, because only the Spirit can do those things. Um, this has been really powerful for me in the last couple of weeks because as I've been looking, just kind of assessing my dad, um, as intently for my kids. And so last uh, couple of weeks, I started praying more intently um, for both my kids. And within two days, my daughter comes up to me, grabs her Bible, sits down with me, says, Dad, can you work in their hearts or whoever you're ministering to, if it's not your kids or somebody else. Third um, is scripture. Maybe you've heard someone say, or maybe you've said something like this, well, my dad yelled at me and I respected him for it. So it's okay to yell at my kids. But scripture says, put on love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So yelling is not a Jesus way to do discipline. It's a way, but it's not according to God's word. So it's strong. Yeah, it's recording. So okay, it's recording. So here we go. Okay, I'm so sorry. All righty. 
Got, like literally, every time I guest speak, something happens with the mic. I, there might be a curse. Maybe you guys should pray for me. All right. Uh, so here, here's the problem, though, with everything that I just said, um, is that we all know that. We know we need to pray. We know we need to like, read the Bible. We know Jesus is the only one. We know that up here. Um, but there are these barriers, and these barriers to, to why we can't uh, fulfill that. And Solomon can help us with that. So if you look at verse 2, we're going to get into point number 2 here. Uh, Solomon says this. He says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Uh, what's the standard answer when you ask somebody how their week was? What do they usually say? Busy. It's busy. That's how everybody answers. Busy. That's the word that marks our lives. Being busy isn't necessarily bad. God wants us to be industrious and productive for his kingdom. But if the sole thing we always answer is that we're busy or we constantly feel in a hurry or rushed or panicked, something is off. Psalm 127 reflects on the reality that anxious toil and excessive busyness are the marks of those who aren't relying on Jesus. Now, don't hear me wrong. There could be other reasons for anxiety, so I'm not saying that the only way, you know, if you're ever experiencing anxiety, it's always a result of you not trusting God, but it is one of the things. In many cases, a constant sense of anxiety in our day-to-day -day life may indicate we are, not, we are working in our own strength rather than in God's. For the people in Solomon's day, that looked like very tough labor. Constructing walls takes time, and there were real enemies who would attack the city. It was an easy excuse to keep slaving and working and to not get adequate rest and sleep. Now, for us, it looks different. For us, uh, we may not be involved in backbreaking work like they were back in those days, although some of you might be farmers or whatever, and you're still, back, you're still doing, breaking your back. But a lot of us in the West, we're, we're anxious um, and we're busy for other reasons. It's because we're trying to cram everything in. And that also, it's also just mental labor, just because of the digital age that we're living in. Um, it's, it's an age that Mark Sayers, uh, who's a, is an author, he said that we're developing something called a digital nervous system, which produces ambient anxiety in our lives. So in other words, our digital practices keep us engaged in noise, and some like really heavy content around the world. And there's a constant sense of distraction and mental labor going in and we're not getting mental rest like we were before. Now, if you're not a digitally engaged person, that may not be like super applicable to you, but here's one that might be, overscheduling. Often many Christians are involved in lots of good things and it's not easy to maintain a balance, but part of the reason we overschedule our families is because we're driven by fear and anxiety. And perhaps it's the thought that if our kids don't start playing soccer at age three, they're not going to be able to keep up with the other kids, and so we fear they won't be a success. So we keep them going. They have to be in it. Or perhaps we just want our child to have every opportunity to do what we weren't able to do. Or perhaps we just kind of like being busy. Because if we aren't, we don't really know what else we would do. So we just stay busy. 
Or perhaps we like being busy because it makes us feel important. There could be lots of reasons. And I think what happens here is there's a cyclical effect. So sometimes when we, we're failing to trust God, so we work in our own strength, and that makes us stay busier and more anxious. And so we can't slow down long enough to pray and hear from God. And so we keep trusting ourselves. And somehow we have to break that cycle. And so, like, I think there's lots of ways we can do that. We can intercept that uh, all, all the way along there. But one of the ways is to unhurry ourselves. There's no question that hurry and busyness in our culture is working against our life with God. Dallas Willard once called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. He said, followers of Jesus must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from their lives. John Mark Homer says, hurry and busyness are connected to time and attention. And if you don't have time and you can't have the capacity to pay attention, you basically can't have a spiritual life at all. Pete Scazzaro says this. He says, if you had one word to describe Jesus, what would it be? Would it be loving or kind or compassionate or powerful, generous? It is true that many words might fit, but then he quotes Dallas Willard again. He says, Dallas Willard, one of the most influential thinkers on spiritual formation in our day, offered his own word, relaxed. When you are centered on God, you are relaxed. Imagine yourself today leading and carrying out your responsibilities in a relaxed inner posture. It may be the best gift you can offer to those around you. So basically, it's a call to relax. Just like Frankie uh, goes to Hollywood. Remember that song in the 80s? Relax, don't do it. Remember that? Those were the words of Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It was a great song. It was a great song. But actually, when you think about Jesus, when you think about him in the Gospels, just like think of how often he didn't panic. You know, his disciples come up to him. They're like, we don't have enough bread. So he's like, well, it's okay. Just feed them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they were probably annoyed by that, I'm sure. Um, but he's just relaxed. And then, like, right after that, you know, they're having the, the big storm at sea. And what was he doing in the boat? He's sleeping. <laughs> he's so relaxed. And he's just like, oh, okay, I'll get up and I'll stop the storm. Um, now, he had the power to do that, but he's relaxed. He trusts God. And some have described trusting God as relaxing into God. Solomon reminds us in the psalm that rest and sleep are gifts from God. They're also signs that we understand God's love. God's in control, and he loves us so we can rest in him. We can sleep knowing he loves us. And if we don't slow down and slow down our family schedule or unplug digitally or relax into God, then we won't be able to read scripture or pray or even remember to be humble because we're too rushed to remember God. If we don't unhurry, we, we won't be able to build our families and our churches on Jesus. We'll be building in the power of the flesh and not the power of the spirit. And this kind of pace is just, it's not doing great things for our children. I could go into a whole thing here about how children aren't getting enough free play today. And they say it's harming their anxiety levels. But I think you guys get the point. In Psalm 127, God is inviting his people, the family of God, and the individual households to unload ourselves, to walk with his easy yoke. So what's your anxiety level like? 
What's your busyness level like? How are you sleeping these days? When's the last time you had a nap? <laughs> I love naps. Naps are the best. What can you cut back on so you can spend, you and your family can spend more time with Jesus and rest in his loving presence? Those are questions for you. Last point. Children bless. Children bless. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, Solomon says. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So God not only gives the gift of sleep and rest, but he gives this amazing gift. Children. The gift of children. Children are a heritage, he says. An inheritance is literally what it means. A gracious gift. It's unearned. And it's of great benefit to those to whom it is given. Um, just to, to help you understand that word reward that it says in there, because sometimes we can think that that means that we're earning these children, that like the good people, the awesome people get kids, and the people who aren't as awesome don't. But that's not what reward means here. Line one and two of verse three are synonymous, essentially. It's called a synonymous parallelism. Anyway, kind of weird Bible stuff. But basically what it means is it's the same idea in different words. So when we hear the word reward, we're not to think of something we earn, but it's still a gracious gift. It's an inheritance. It's, it's a gift from God. They are a gift, a gracious gift. And in a surprise twist, Solomon tells us why children are a blessing. He tells us that they will be like arrows in the hand of a warrior, protecting their fathers at the city walls through combat and disputing legal matters on their behalf at the gate of the city where business was done. So when they, when they rise up, they will protect their parents. So as much as we worry about protecting our children, Solomon is telling us that our children are the ones who will protect and take care of us one day. Think all through the Bible how God saves his people in this unexpected way. They're slaves in Egypt, and God brings hope through a child. Moses is born. Think about they've gone through the time of the judges, and they're being oppressed, and God sends to an infertile woman named Hannah a gracious gift, a little boy Samuel. 400 years of silence, King Herod and Roman oppression. God sends his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to free those who are oppressed. Jesus is born in a humble, humble way. God does this. He's blessing his people in this unexpected way through children. In our culture, we often view children in two equally poor ways. Um, ironically, they kind of piggyback off each other. I think of it like Russian dolls. So like one breeds the other often. So here's the first one. Children as an idol. We wouldn't normally admit that we make children idols, but very often in our culture, the reason, again, we're so busy is because we're catering to like every whim that our kids have. And we don't want to hand them over. We're constantly monitoring them. You've maybe heard of the, the phrase, the helicopter parent. They're just hovering over their kids all the time. And this will eventually